O Lord, giver of life. Pour your power into our inner being that we might be passive participants in your very life as we put off the old and put on the new in righteousness and holiness. All this we ask through Jesus Christ, who as head of all things joins and holds us together. Amen. You may be seated. Well, just over five years ago, on August 25th, 2018, my good friend Brandon, his twin brother, and I drove through the night from the Grand Tetons National Park to the Devil's Tower National Monument in the Black Hills of Wyoming. And we arrived there still in darkness. We slept inside the car in the parking lot for a few hours, woke up still in darkness, and started up Devil's Tower by the light of our headlamps. Now, if you don't know, Devil's Tower is an impressive piece of rock that just kind of jets up out of the ground. Like, it startles you. It sneaks up on you. And the contrast to the landscape is startling. Now, this massive monolithic mountain makes an impression on you when you are there and you see it in person. But even as you're approaching it, it kind of startles you. Just this sheer rock face rising some 1,267 feet above the rivers that run below. And as you approach this and try to get onto that nice flat section on top, which is easy to walk around on, you realize that it's 867 feet from the base to that top, and getting there is not quite as easy. In fact, you're going to have to ascend six different pitches if you're going to make it to the top. A pitch is a section of a climb where you can climb up and you anchor into these like bolted-in anchors, you belay up your partners, and then you continue on to the next pitch. So there's six of these pitches if you're going to make it to the top. And so we, we sleep in the car, we get there, we're trying to beat all the other crowds to this one route and get there first. And, and to be honest, none of us have actually done this type of climbing really before. Um, <laughs> Most of us have done what's called sport climbing. It's these shorter routes with like bolts and anchors like just into the rock and cranked down and glued in and like sturdy and safe. Here we're going to have to place our own protection. The cams and nuts that you're cramming into cracks and crevices that you can then clip into. And you don't just need protection to clip into because if you clip in and then fall, the rope just rips right through. You need like a person on the other end of the rope to catch you. So you need two things. You need protection and you need a person. And so we get there to the base of this climb, we have all of our gear and our harnesses and our ropes and our people, and we're, we're tying in and we beat the crowds and they're kind of starting to stack up behind us. And we begin up the first pitch. And, and my friend generously places about 12 to 14 pieces of protection in the first 70 feet. And then he belays his brother up, then I come up bringing up the rear and collecting all the gear. And we get to the first set of anchors, and we're kind of getting all the gear passed around, getting ready to go up the second pitch. And before we know it, the next guy is like right there, just hanging out, waiting for us. He's placed two pieces of protection on the first pitch. Like this guy knows what he's doing. Climbing this mountain is like walking across the parking lot for him. So he's literally just hanging there on his hands, waiting for us to figure it all out and get out of his way. And that will be the last two pieces of protection he places on the entire climb. The next five pitches, he does not clip into the rock a single more time. He just climbs up and is hanging out on his fingertips waiting for us. So in this picture, we finally, you can't really see him, but that's him standing there. We're like, hey, can we like clip you in, please? Like, we don't want to sit here and watch you fall to your death. And he does have two ropes tied to him because on the other end of these two ropes are his two friends. 
So he climbs the pitch, not clipped in, gets to the anchors, belays his friends up, climbs the next pitch, not clipped in, and repeats this process to the top of an 867-foot piece of rock. He's insane. And why am I telling you this story? What does this story have to do with Ephesians chapter 4? Like, why did this story resurface in my mind as I was studying the text this week? What does this have to do with what Paul is saying? Well, I think there's a few connections. And the first one is this. On the side of that big mountain, with all of our big dreams and our big attempts, the most important thing to us was a small little piece of metal that was keeping us tethered to the rock. And likewise, as Paul is discussing this grand vision of who God is and what he has done, Paul makes a big point with a very small little word, therefore. It's the word that that marks this transition. Uh, Chapter 4, as Pastor Chase told us last week, is a transition chapter in the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters primarily talk about who God is and what he has done, and now it's transitioning to the church, the people of God. And so Paul uses this word, therefore. He places this word, therefore, like a piece of protection to keep us tethered to all that has come before. Uh, The English word in the NIV is so, or now, in the ESV. So, now, then, therefore, four different English words, one word in Greek, un, just three letters, a small little word that connects us to a massive reality and truth and who God is and what he has done. And Paul is going to be generous with his placement of all this protection throughout the last three chapters of Ephesians. Nine times in the next three chapters, he's going to go, therefore, therefore, keep putting us back into the rock, to the mountain that is God. You see, the shift has taken place in chapter four. The focus is now on who we are and what we're doing, but he has not moved on from who God is and what God is doing. And this second therefore in verse 17, the first verse of our text today, ends that transitional phase, that verses 1 through 16. And and the focus fully shifts to us as we're participating in the life of God. And so when the connection is maintained, when, when this organic connection of body to head is maintained, then the lives that we live as Christians in the church bear witness to the righteousness and the holiness of God that have been freshly created in us by the Holy Spirit. Paul's placing these pieces of protection to keep us tethered to all that has come before. He has not moved on from God as mountain to us as mountain climbers. The impressive thing of climbing is not the climbers, it's the mountains that are climbing, right? And so, Everything about who God is and what he has done is connected to who we are and who we are now to be as the church. And and Paul is trying to wake us up to the danger that can so easily slip in for those of us who have been coming to church for a while. Those of us who become familiar, who have grown up, who've been around for a minute. We can be lulled to sleep to the reality and the danger of what we're engaging in. So Paul wants to wake us up to that. We can very easily become this man that was climbing up behind us who's so confident in his own ability that he's no longer tethered to the mountain. We can become professionals and experts. We can think that the church is all about us and what we are doing. But our gospel passage today reminds us that the kingdom does not belong to the professional climbers, but to the little children who are tethered 
to their father. There is no free soloing in the kingdom. We are tied to one another. We're roped in with one another. As verse 16 says, the whole body joined and held together by every joint. And most importantly, we are to grow up into the head, into Christ. We are tethered to the rock of Christ Jesus. And so while the focus shifts to our participation, the foundation is still very much God's promise to us in Christ Jesus. Now, the second reason that this story came to mind, and this experience was kind of unearthed in my memories, is that verse 17, like Devil's Tower, seems to come out of nowhere. You're just driving up, minding your own business, and then it jets out and stands in sharp contrast to the horizon. Likewise, the tone and the tenor of what Paul is saying seems to be in sharp contrast to everything he said before. Like if you just look at chapters 1 through 3, it would seem like all of God's promises are yes and amen, but our participation is like no and oh my. Like why is Paul all of a sudden so negative? He begins our participation with this negative. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Why the abrupt change? Why the sharp contrast? What is he trying to tell us? Well, as, and as an intensive listener to this letter, we should begin to ask these questions, Paul, what are you doing? Why so negative? And why so negative on the Gentiles? Right? Like if you paid attention, it would seem like Paul's going, the Gentiles are good to go. Like what happened to the fact that those who were far off have now been brought near? What happened to the fact that this wall of hostility that stood between us has been torn down? Like this is the mystery that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. And Paul would go, yes, all those things are still true. You see, Paul's not talking about ethnic Gentiles. He's not talking about Gentiles according to the flesh. He's dealing with the Gentile culture, the culture they would have been coming out of. See, just as there is a danger for those of us who become familiar with church and the things of God, there is an equal and opposite danger of those who have no clue about God and His ways. You're not simply just adding something else to the mix. Like if a Jew had become saved and put their faith in Jesus, they would have already known the law. They would have known they can't keep it. They can't live up to it. They need forgiveness in Jesus. They need the power of the Holy Spirit to help them live new lives. The Jews knew our Old Testament reading from today, Psalm 15. They knew the answer to the question, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? They knew verses 2 through 5 gave... Ten, very straightforward moral commands, do these things. They prayed Psalm 24. They knew, Lord, who can ascend the hill? Lord, who can stand in your holy place? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart and who do not trust in idols. But the Gentile culture of Ephesus was full of idols. Just like the Gentile culture of America. So Paul knew that they and we needed the negative. This is why Paul goes with the nose. There is an old self that must be put off in order for the new self to be put on. And so despite what our culture tells us, we can't keep being an OnlyFans models but just do it for Jesus now that we've gotten saved. We can't keep sleeping with a person we're not married to. We can't keep looking at pornography. We can't keep spending the money however we want to. We can't keep lying and stealing. 
We can't keep letting our anger get the best of us or participating in perverse joking. These are all the things Paul says we must put off in order to put on the new that is in Jesus. All of these things will weigh us down and pull us off the pitch. They will not help us ascend the mountain of the Lord and be in his holy presence. So all the negatives, all the no's, all the do-nots, all the put-offs, all the put-aways actually give space for our growth in God. And the artists among us know this truth. The artists know that the no's are actually a good thing. That boundaries do not stifle creativity, but they stir it up and unleash it. That the canvas is actually a place where creation can take place. That the negative space allows the positive picture to pop. The reliefs bring forth the image. It's the space between the notes that makes the song. So the negatives that Paul is commanding us in our text are almost always followed by positives. We don't do this so that we can do this. God is carving out of us spaces that he might fill with himself. The relief in the rocks that become grips to grab on to God. God is opening himself to us that we might journey further up and further in to the life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That we might grow up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So now that we as Christians have been tied into Christ, connected by sinews and ligaments to the body, what does it look like to actually climb the mountain? What does it look like to go up or grow up in God? Well, we tell the truth to each other. We don't let anger produce sin in us. We don't let anger stick around for longer than a day. We work hard for honest pay, and then we give it away to those in need. We make sure that our talk is good, that it gives grace to others. We are kind and tender, and we forgive. But like, how do you do that? How do you put all that new on once the old has been put off? And it seems like Paul is saying, we can't. At least not on our own not in our own power. We need the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. We need the Lord, the giver of life. It seems that Paul is saying is that the whole point of this passage is that we need the Spirit. Or the whole point of the passage is not a point, it is a person. It's a he. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to transform us, to make us new, to renew us. See, verse 30 is the only imperative, the only command in this passage that is not followed by a positive. Uh, the whole pattern has been this. Paul's going, don't do this so that you can do this for this reason. Don't do this so that you can do this for this reason. Don't do this so you can do this for this reason. And then with a syncopated beat, as if to get our attention, in verse 30, Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And there is no positive simply do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And one may make the, the case that, well, he's not saying a positive because he's already given us the positive up in verse 3. It says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
But again, I think the point is that it's not a point, it is a person. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You can't grieve a point or a principle or some power source. You can only grieve a person. The Holy Spirit is not some cosmic force we should just try to live in harmony with. It's not some impersonal atmosphere we just need to jive with. It is not an it. It is a he. The Holy Spirit is a person, and he is the person that provides the power that we need to grow up into all the fullness of Christ. You see, we do not create the unity of the Spirit. He does. We just maintain it. Paul's not going, hey, don't grieve the Spirit so that you can get on with all this work and activity. He's going, don't grieve the Spirit because it's the Spirit who is at work in our midst. It's the Spirit that provides the power. It's the person of the Spirit that causes us to be transformed. And Paul doesn't just make this point by putting the Spirit at the end. He actually places the Spirit right in the middle of this passage. Verses 22 and 23 and 24, Paul's summing up kind of all that he's trying to say and all that he'll go on to say. He's talking to these Gentile believers. He's saying, you're no longer ignorant of God and His ways. You're no longer alienated from His life. You have been taught Christ. You learned Jesus a person, not just a bunch of principles. And what did you learn? You learned in the past tense to put off the old, verse 22. And you learned in the past tense to put on the new. But right in the middle of these two infinitives, they're not imperatives. He's not saying, hey, because you were saved, now put off and now put on. He's going, this is what you were taught. This has happened to you. You have put the old off. You have put the new on. But right in the middle, verse 23, We get a present tense in the passive voice. This is right now what is being done to you, in you, for you. This is not what you are doing. This is what God is doing. So verse 23, and I must warn you, if you're reading the NIV, you kind of get ripped off with the translation here, Um, although the ESV isn't much better either. But it says in the NIV, verse 23, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. So there is that passive voice there. We're not making ourselves new. We are being made new by something or someone outside of us who has come in us. But to be renewed in the attitude of our minds isn't really helpful because the word attitude isn't actually there. It's the word spirit. And so the ESV renders it to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Okay, a little bit better, we got the word spirit, but it's a lowercase s referring to our spirit, our, the spirit of our minds. And the best scholars who study Paul and his use of spirit would go, really the translation should be that we are to be renewed in our minds by the spirit. It's the spirit who is active in us to renew us, to make us new. We are passive participants in the power and the person of the Holy Spirit right now. In this present moment, no matter what you are going through, God's Spirit is alive and at work in us, His church, to make us new. This is why Paul goes on to say in Titus 3, verse 5, He saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit that renews us. 
God in this verse is answering Paul's prayer from chapter 3, verse 16. That we would be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being. It's the spirit that gives power. And he's doing it in us. It's the power and the person of the Holy Spirit that we need. And that is exactly what we have. That is exactly who we have. God has given us himself. The protection that we have in the promise of Christ will hold. The protection has been placed. It's not going to give way. But we cannot pull ourselves up the mountain of God in our own power. We need not only to get a grip, we need a guide. We need the person and the work of the Spirit. And this is exactly what Jesus has given us. John 16, 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. All of this is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are passive participants in the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. O Lord, the giver of life, pour your power into our inner being that we might be passive participants in your very life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we put off the old and put on the new in righteousness and holiness. All this we ask through Jesus Christ, who as the head of all things, joins and holds us all together. Amen.